Coming up on episode 36 of the Keto Camp Podcast, we have the amazing Carrie Brown. Nobody was critically thinking about the problem except me. I was the only one that was saying, why do I have bipolar? Everyone else was just saying, you have bipolar, let's find a medication that, you know, let's give you a Band-Aid to stop the symptoms. And I was like, I don't want to stop the symptoms. I want the symptoms not to happen in the first place. Why is nobody asking, why does Carrie have bipolar? I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Well, hello there, Keto Camper. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. Out of all the podcasts out there, you chose this one, and I'm grateful for you. So I want to say thank you first and foremost. On this episode, we have an amazing human being, Carrie Brown. Carrie has a very interesting and powerful story that she's going to share with you on this episode. If you are somebody who is currently dealing with depression, or you have dealt with it in the past, or you know somebody dealing with depression, this is a must-listen episode because Carrie Brown was suicidal. Carrie Brown was rock bottom. And now she's doing a lot of great work in the community of the keto and health community. But this was not her life back then. And she's gonna share her story, what she had to overcome. It's so inspirational. She's a good soul. She's a good human being. And she's a great chef too, by the way, which you'll learn about. Some other bullet points we're gonna cover in this episode. What role genetics play with your keto results, with your health results, and how to develop that right mindset for success. The role of ketones and the brain and feeling good. The MTHFR gene and why it's important to know if you have that gene. B vitamin supplementation, neurotransmitters. I mean, we go deep into brain function. So if you're somebody who wants to learn about depression and a powerful way to help with depression, this episode is gonna be important for you and I'm excited to share Carrie with the Keto Camp community. Before I do, I wanna let you know that this episode is sponsored by my favorite olive oil. Olive oil is my favorite keto oil, even for cooking because the high polyphenols help protect it from oxidizing quickly. So I love olive oil, but here's the deal. Most olive oil is rancid. The olive oil you find at your grocery store is rancid. Here's how you know if your olive oil is rancid. You take a tablespoon of it, drink it, and see what happens. If your olive oil goes down smooth, then chances are it is a rancid, poor quality olive oil. But instead, if it goes down and it makes your tongue a little fuzzy, throat burns a little bit, that's a good sign. Rich in polyphenols. Olive oil, a lot of studies show olive oil helps create neurogenesis, new brain cells, it helps with inflammation. 
So I love olive oil and I'm a snob. So this episode is sponsored by Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. I get my olive oil delivered to me. It's handpicked from different regions all across the world, delivered to my door on a monthly basis. You could try your first bottle for $1 by going to ketocampoliveoil.com. That's www.ketocampoliveoil.com to get your bottle for a buck. One last announcement before we get into this episode with Carrie. I'll be speaking at the Low Carb USA conference in Boca Raton, Florida, January 15th through the 17th, 2020. January 15th through the 17th, 2020. I'm excited to be at this conference, not to just speak, but to attend it. There's gonna be amazing speakers there and it's gonna be a great group of people. I'd love for you to attend. I'd love to meet you. And you could get $100 off your ticket price for being a keto camper. So if you go to lowcarbusa.org and put in keto camp during checkout, you will get $100 off your ticket price. There's also a room block going on right now for over 50% off your hotel room. Boca Raton, Florida in January is spectacular. Make it a goal to be there and I would love to meet you. Let's get into this episode with Carrie Brown. Carrie Brown is an ex-professional pastry chef turned cookbook author, recipe developer, freelancer, photographer with a crazy four-country, three-continent-spanning resume, which includes such things as a chocolate TV show, a chocolate cookbook, and making pastries for the Queen of England. Carrie trained at the National Bakery School in London and have now turned her pastry chef talents to creating scrumptious keto, low-carb, low-carb, high-fat food to help the world eat smarter, live better, and put the health back in healthy. Carrie's a food and lifestyle blogger. She's a cookbook author, podcast co-host, recipe developer, photographer. She's working excitedly and tirelessly alongside Carl Franklin and Richard Morris of Two Keto Dudes and other amazing people like Danny and Maura Vega, Kim Howerton, Dr. Ken Berry to spread the word about the amazing benefits and help people live a ketogenic lifestyle. Carrie has published five cookbooks that will make eating healthy and losing weight the most delicious and simple thing you will ever do. Carrie Brown, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Ben, how are you? I'm doing wonderful, even better now that I'm with you, and I'm so excited to chat with you and introduce you to my audience, so uh, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm very excited. I only just found out you had a podcast, but I was very excited when I did find out you were podcasting. My my image of you from what I see on social media is just this super dynamic, high energy, like loving, just awesome person, so... I'm very excited that you got a podcast going, and I'm, I'm honored that uh, you felt that my journey may be useful to some of your listeners. Yeah, I, it definitely is, and thank you for saying that. I love that you have the words thankful behind you. I'm all about attitude of gratitude. I'm grateful for you, and I'm thankful for you and what you just said. I really want you, Carrie, to get into your story. You have a very powerful story that I know it's going to resonate with every single person who's listening or watching this podcast right now. So please get into your story, get as deep as you like and share with us what went on with you in the past. And then we'll get into what you're doing today. So really, my my whole life has been wrapped up in depression, or mental health challenges. And that is actually what brought me 
finally, after a very long time, to keto. So I am one of those people who did not come to the keto space for weight loss. I came for brain health. And it was actually one of the, well, he's, he's getting kind of, kind of famous, one of the, the keto doctors, Dr. Ted Naiman in Seattle, he actually was the one who originally put me on the keto diet. And he did that because the keto diet, as you know, was originally developed to help children with seizures. And it was very, very successful in helping children with seizures. And when I met uh, Dr. Naiman, the medication I was on was actually an anti-seizure medication. And it was the one that was keeping me at least somewhat stable at the time. And so he figured that if, if I was responding to an anti-seizure medication, that it made sense to him that maybe the ketogenic diet would help me in a similar way that it helps children who were having seizures. So that's how I came to the ketogenic diet. But the story really began when I was born. I, I like to say I was born depressed. And you'll actually see that I was. When I get to the end of the story, it'll all come back round and it'll make sense. So I have always lived under this cloud of depression. And, you know, when you're, when you're small, you don't understand any of that. And, and for me, it had been always been like that so for me it was just normal but as I started getting older um, you know seven eight nine ten I realized that that there was something different but I didn't know what it was I and I knew that there was something different because the people around me would let me know that I was somehow different you know I get over yourself like you're a pain you're why are you always grumpy why there was just all this feedback that was you know good enough you're different to everybody else you know snap out of it all of that kind of typical talk and so i grew up with this sense of not being good enough and somehow being different and not in a good way but i didn't understand it because that had always been with me but also I, there was just this overwhelming sense of sadness that I felt all the time, which I didn't understand. And there was no actual reason for it in terms of, I grew up in, a, in an average middle-class family in Southern England. We had an average three bedroom home that we lived in. I always had enough food to eat. I had clothes. I went to a normal British school. We didn't have a ton of money. We didn't vacation a lot. We didn't have a lot of the, the, you know, toys. But, you know, everything was great in my world physically. So I actually had no reason to be sad or depressed. My parents didn't beat me. There was no kind of abuse going on from any other part of my family. So the, the depression, this sense of, of doom and sadness never made sense. But I knew that it was there. And I think it was when I uh, moved out of home and went to live in London to attend university that I finally went to see a counsellor. They have free counselling in the university back there. And I went because I was, I'd reached the ripe old age of 19 and I just knew that I should be feeling differently. I should be feeling joy and I couldn't and I never had and I 
It didn't matter what I did, I couldn't feel joy. I kind of felt sad and numb most of the time. So I started in therapy at 19 and that kind of helped a bit, but not really. And the way I like to explain that is that you can't talk yourself out of depression any more than you can talk yourself out of diabetes or a broken leg. When I say depression, I'm talking about clinical depression. So to differentiate what I mean there is what I like to call a situational depression is where something happens that makes you sad. So maybe you lose a pet. Maybe you lose someone that you love. Maybe you get laid off from work. You lose your job. You lose your house. So those kind of things can make you sad, can make you depressed. But that's a situational depression. It doesn't last forever. The sad thing happens. You deal with it. Life goes back to normal. What I was suffering from was a clinical depression, i.e. a depression that never went away, a depression that didn't have a triggering event. There was nothing sad going on in your life to make you sad. You just had this overwhelming depression all the time. You can't talk yourself out of that kind of depression any more than you can talk yourself out of any other chronic illness or something as simple as a broken leg. So time went on and at various times I was put on and I'd go to the doctor, it would become overwhelming, my depression, I would go to the doctor, they'd put me on medication, it wouldn't really help, there were side effects, I got fed up with the side effects, I'd come off the medication because they weren't helping me anyway, so I was like, well, if they're not going to help me, then I'm not going to take medication, that's not doing anything. And so my depression kind of came a bit cyclical, it would get worse, I'd go to the doctor, I'd get medication, it wouldn't help, I'd come off it. And then I'd kind of go on like this, but the depression kind of, it came and went, it was worse at times and then not so bad. And that was really the, for years, that was how I existed. And then about, oh, I'm trying to think now, a, a bunch of years ago, maybe about 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago, I became really, really depressed. And so I went to the doctor, they put me on antidepressants and the first antidepressant they put me on made me violent. So I was throwing furniture across the room. I was assaulting people. And I'm not a violent person. And luckily for me, one of the people I assaulted understood that it was the drug that was causing that reaction, not me. So they didn't do anything about the fact that I'd assaulted them. But now when I look back, I'm incredibly grateful that that was true because I was very, very, very close to, you know, I could have ended up on a felony assault charge over something that the drug was doing. And so that was kind of eye-opening to me that medication could cause such a radical change in behavior. I also didn't get any benefit. So they took me off of that antidepressant. They put me on another one which made me suicidal. They took me off that. They put me on another one. So for a year, I was on five different antidepressants, none of which worked, all of which caused horrible side effects. The last one they put me on caused 24 by 7 panic attacks. So for six weeks straight, I had a panic attack. 
I stopped being able to sleep. I was taking double dose Ambien, couldn't sleep. So at the end of six weeks where I'd been up for literally six weeks, I thought I'd lost my mind. I felt like I had gone crazy. I couldn't even sit and watch TV. I was like, oh, the police are going to come there. I mean, it was just crazy making. And at the end of that six weeks, I just decided, okay, I'm going to take myself off all this medication because these side effects, I can't stand them. So I came off everything and just went, okay, nobody knows what's wrong with me. Nobody can help me. None of these drugs work. I'm just going to have to figure out how to drag myself through life um, as best I can, because this is apparently my life. And so that's what I learned to do. I learned to, you know, put on a game face and act how I needed to act out in public to be able to go to work and do my job and not get fired. And I spent most of my time alone because relationships were just difficult because I couldn't control this depression and the way it made me feel. So I basically just learned to fake my way through life just in order to survive. And that just became my normal. And then fast forward a few years in 2013, I actually had a full on mental break. And I ended up handcuffed, under armed guard, at the ER, and I very, very, very nearly got committed. I was living in Washington State at the time, and it's actually illegal to commit suicide in Washington State. So the state have the power, if somebody thinks that you're suicidal or you're actually a danger to yourself, they can essentially incarcerate you in a mental facility for 14 days. Now, as a single person, that was not an option because if I just didn't show up at work, you know, I would have lost my job. I mean, everything would have gone sideways and I have no family. So I'm very isolated. And so I managed to talk my way out of being committed, but there were several conditions. One of the conditions was that I had a psychiatric evaluation and went under weekly psychiatric care. And there were also some other smaller conditions. So I started psychiatric care and that was when I was actually diagnosed with bipolar two disorder. Up until that point, every doctor I'd seen throughout my life had classified me as having just, you know, depression, unipolar depression. When I was diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder, that explained why none of the medications that I'd had previously for depression had actually been effective. Because if you treat someone with bipolar disorder with a unipolar antidepressant, bad things happen, which is what had been my experience. So they had actually misdiagnosed me up until then, which was why none of the antidepressants had worked. You have to treat people with bipolar with a completely different kind of medication. So there followed, after I was evaluated and got the, the title of bipolar 2 disorder, and for those who don't know, bipolar 1 disorder is where you have a lot of manic episodes. So those are the crazy things, driving 90 and a 30, spending $50,000 that you don't have, having sex with everything that stands still long enough, like 
or the, the party, the outrageous drinking, jumping off of buildings, the things you read about in the news. Those people have bipolar one disorder, lots of manic episodes punctuated by much fewer, much shorter depressive episodes. Bipolar two is the opposite of that. So people with bipolar two have these intense, long lasting periods of depression punctuated by shorter episodes of what they call hypomania, which is not like the super crazy behavior. In me, my hypomania turned up looking like I would write a cookbook in five weeks. Like I just became super driven, super focused, didn't need any sleep, was incredibly productive, which I loved my hypermanic episodes because I just got so much done and I felt like superwoman and, you know, I was like saving the world. So I loved that part of it. But of course, most of the time I spent in this chronic and acute depression. So once I'd been diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder, there followed this merry-go-round of, of doctors and psychiatrists and psychotherapists who were trying to figure out what to medicate me with to keep me stable so that I was no longer a danger to myself. And that took about, I can't remember, I want to say three or four different medications where they got me on something that stopped me being crazy, but also didn't have really outrageous side effects or things that would have ended me up in jail. So that was okay. I could work and, you know, act normal again in public when I needed to. But nine months after my first mental break, I became suicidal despite the medication. And I spent the next eight months being suicidal 24-7. And what I mean by that is when I was awake, my brain was trying to kill me. No matter what I was doing, I, it didn't matter what I was doing, there was this little voice in my head constantly trying to persuade me that everything would be better if I just ended my life. And so I lived with that for eight months. And then I fired my psychiatric team and went to see a new doctor because you can't live like that. I mean, after eight months of having my brain try to kill me, just the, the stress, the emotional exhaustion, that just, I mean, I was so fatigued mentally from trying to keep myself alive when half of my brain was trying to persuade me to kill myself, that it was just exhausting. So I, I found a new doctor. He asked me to try a drug called Lamotrigine. And three days after he put me on that, it was like somebody had switched the light on. And for the first time in my life, I felt joy. And it was miraculous. And so for six months, I had joy. I, I was just, you know, embraced life. I was out there doing all the things and everything was great. And then after six months, I became suicidal again. And their response to that was to double the dose. And the joy returned and for six months everything was fantastic and then i became suicidal again and their response to that was to double the dose and that was the point at which i said i'm calling bs i can't spend the rest of my life waiting for the other shoe to drop waiting for that moment you know is today the day i'm going to become suicidal again and am i going to be in the right frame of mind to keep myself alive through that 
and I can't keep going through life just doubling the dose of these medications that, that affect your brain. And the other thing that frustrated me, and you will appreciate this because of what you do, is that nobody was asking the critical questions. Nobody was critically thinking about the problem except me. I was the only one that was saying, why do I have bipolar? Everyone else was just saying, you have bipolar, let's find a medication that, you know, let's give you a Band-Aid to stop the symptoms. And I was like, I don't want to stop the symptoms. I want the symptoms not to happen in the first place. Why is nobody asking, why does Carrie have bipolar? Because I have bipolar for a reason. I mean, it, you don't just get symptoms for no reason. Something was causing them. Why is nobody asking that? So that was the point at which I fired everybody, my entire team. Fired everybody, took myself off all the medications. No, I didn't. I, I stayed on Lamotrigine because at that point it was keeping me alive and stable. I fired everybody else, psychiatrists, all of them. And that was also at the same point at which I met Ted Naiman. But my, my journey to become my own detective and ask the critical questions and try and figure out why I was bipolar, I looked at all my options and I was like, okay, it could be genetic. It could be environmental. I mean, you know, it could be paint or deodorant or, you know, cleaning products or whatever. So it could be that kind of environment. It could be EMF. It could be radiation. It could be that kind of environment. It could be food. It could be the environment in which I grew up. My father had, as they called it then, manic depression. And while most of my childhood was fine emotionally it was a very difficult house to live in because my father was manic depressive and so there was all of these things and I'm like is it a combination of all of those what is it why am I bipolar so I decided to start with genetics because genetics is black and white it's fixed your genetics are what your genetics are they're not variable so I did the 23andMe spat in a tube six weeks later got my DNA file back and that was life-changing so what finding out what was in my DNA and meeting Dr. Ted Naiman we actually met on Twitter and I started talking to him about DNA did he understand it and he said to me he thought he could help with my bipolar so I went to see him he put me on the keto diet for the reasons that I, I mentioned at the beginning because I was on an anti-seizure medication so he put me on the keto diet I had my DNA file. I had every food sensitivity test known to man, blood tests, what's in your blood that shouldn't be, what isn't in there that should be, you know, vitamin levels, mineral. I tested all the things and I found a naturopath because that's not Ted's wheelhouse. So I, I took all of that to a naturopath in Seattle and also started the ketogenic diet with Ted and to be clear, it was super keto. It was therapeutic keto. We were, our goal in life was to get my ketone levels as high as possible, but we weren't doing it for weight loss. We were specifically doing that to bathe my brain in ketones to try and heal my brain. So I was doing that with Ted and I took all of the data that I'd gathered from all this testing when I DNA to the naturopath. And there was a lot of things we discovered one of the things, and the most important thing for me that we discovered is I have this genetic wrinkle called MTHFR, which is thankfully getting more and more and more recognition. 
as people start to, to talk about it. So the MTHFR means that I have a reduced ability to methylate. Amongst other things, I find it more difficult to methylate. Methylation is a process. Lots of processes in our body require the process of methylation. So if you can't methylate, it causes all sorts of problems. One of those problems is that I find it much harder to detox than other people. My liver, you know, I, I get so mad, mad when people online say, you know, you don't need a cleanse, you don't need to detox, you have a liver. <laughs> Which is like saying to someone with diabetes, you don't need insulin, you have a pancreas, <laughs> right? It's exactly the same. But people recognize that with diabetes, you, you need insulin because your pancreas isn't working properly. But not a lot of people have got to the point where they realize that just because you have a liver doesn't mean it's working properly. So detoxing may not work as well for some people as it does for others. I'm one of those people. And most people with MTHFR gene mutation, their livers just do not detox the body like everybody else's does. And so all those toxins build up and we can't get rid of them and our livers get sad and everything gets sluggish. And you know way more about all of those processes than I do, Ben. But that's one of the things that this gene mutation causes is the inability to detox effectively. The other big thing for me with my bipolar was that not being able to methylate means that I cannot use B vitamins. When we consume B vitamins, our body has to methylate them into a form that can be used by the body. Because I can't do that, I had a severe lifelong deficiency in B vitamins. And why is that important? It's important because the number one function of B vitamins is neurotransmitter health. So literally my brain had never had, it was nutritionally starved. There'd been no B vitamins floating around in my brain. So my neurotransmitters literally were not working properly. We also discovered that my serotonin and dopamine receptors genetically were broken in about 40 different places. Serotonin and dopamine control mood balance. And, and so if you add all those things up, the inability to detoxify, a severe deficiency in B vitamins, some neurotransmitters were, were not literally not being fed, serotonin, dopamine receptors broken all over the place. It was absolutely no surprise that at some point my brain was going to go sideways. And in my case, those that the collection of symptoms that I had, they like to call bipolar 2 disorder. So it was really no surprise. And I literally was born with depression because of that genetic mutation that, that was never discovered. So, you know, I never took pre-methylated B vitamins. So I was just, my brain was literally undernourished from the moment I was born. So that for me, the ketogenic diet, chasing high ketones and methylated B vitamins it literally changed my life. So 12 weeks after I started keto with Dr. Naiman, six weeks after we put me on methylated B vitamins, there was also, I had a, so many food sensitivities, and this will make sense to you, Ben, because, you know, leaky gut, and then my liver can't detox. So there's just like this big cycle of blah. 
and I, I would become more sensitive to more foods all the time because my body just couldn't deal with it all and it got to the point where it thought everything was a poison and my liver was in crisis so we eliminated i went on this crazy elimination diet which when we layered keto over that i was left with nine things that i could eat so i ate nine foods for three months i only ate nine foods i started the methylated b vitamins we started a protocol to detox and kind of help my liver and i was doing keto six weeks after we started all that i uh, dr Naiman. We, we took me off my Lamotrigine. And so I've been completely unmedicated for almost four years. And I have been completely symptom-free from bipolar for that same length of time. Wow. Well, congratulations for taking control and ownership over your health. What an amazing, powerful share that was, Carrie. To go from where you were to 24-7 suicidal thoughts and your brain literally wanted to kill you to what you're doing now and, and impacting so many people, what a 180. And I love what you said about you were the only one asking the question to why are you experiencing depression? Why are you experiencing these symptoms? Because for every effect, there has to be a cause. Effects just don't show up. And it's unfortunate that so many conventional doctors they fail to acknowledge that there is a cause to an effect. And they're really great as, at matching medication and they're very masterful at, at that until it doesn't work and you have to you know, switch to a new medication and, and increase your dose, which happened with you. I always relate that game to that whack-a-mole game at the arcade when a symptom pops up, you hit that mole with a hammer, which so it's a medication and oh, you feel good, you, got, you, know, you took care of that job and then what happens, another mole pops up and it's just this never ending game. And what you did, you were like, enough of these moles. Let me figure out why are the moles popping up? What's the cause here? And uh, it was uh, your genetics. It was your environment. It was the food you were eating. And you did whatever it took because most people, even if they got that information, Carrie, they wouldn't say nine foods for, for three months. No way. I'm not doing that. I need my gluten. I need this. So you actually got the information and took action with it. And I acknowledge you for that because you, your health is uh, improving as a result of that. Uh, well, I just, you know, when you spent eight months battling with your own brain, like desperately trying to stay alive when half of you is desperately trying to kill you, like sitting here looking at that's, I have to do this for the next 50 years, like, I, just the thought of that, right, was so, I, I would have done anything. I was just at that point where it was just like, if this doesn't stop, if I don't find out how to make this stop, I am going to kill myself because I am not living the next 50 years like this. The, the, the struggle, the, the unbelievable amount of energy it takes when your brain is trying to kill you and you're trying to stay alive, I mean, it's just, it's the hardest thing. It's even the hardest physical thing I've ever done is just the amount of energy it takes to stay alive under those circumstances. It was like, if I don't get to the bottom of this, I'm done because I'm not spending 50 years like this. So that was really my kind of, my defining moment was these are my choices die or figure it out 
And I immediately started to feel better. So eating nine things was like, I'll do whatever I, I mean, if I could only have eaten one thing for three months, I would have done it. And I just wish that as human beings that it didn't require us to get to that point before we were like, okay, I surrender, I'll do whatever you want. You know, if, I, if I'd have done this earlier in the journey, it, it would have been useful. But, you know, we just as humans, a lot of us seem to have to go so far down before we'll say, okay, I'll do whatever. But I was definitely at that point. And, and actually nine things seemed like, I, I was absolutely fine with it. I would have done whatever they told me to do with my naturopath. And, and you know, and I, I was lucky because I could eat duck. I mean, you know, a life eating duck is not a bad life. And <laughs> I could eat lamb, like two of my favorite things. So I was it boring? Yes. Did I care? No, I didn't care because my brain stopped trying to kill me. So that made it as I went along on that three months, only eating nine things, it became easier and easier because I did start to feel better. I, I remember the year that I did all of this, which was four years, so 2015. So from my mental break in 2013 to 2015, when I said, I'm done with you all, you all suck. Nobody's asking the right questions was two years. So I struggled with that whole suicidal thing and all of that for two years. This was easy compared to that two years so yeah it was in 2015 when I said I am done I have to find out there has to be a reason and I'm going to find out what it is otherwise I'm just going to shoot myself now because I'm not living like this did you get a lot of backlash from those uh, conventional doctors that you fired your team the, the people that were, were treating the symptoms did, did they, they give you any heat for saying you're done with that it was interesting. My psychiatrist, the second psychiatrist that I had after I had my mental break, we had these like really like every week and I was required to go every week. So there's $300, $350 for half an hour every week that I'm required to do because I'm suicidal. And so I'd go in and I'm a thinker. I'm a very big introvert and I think a lot. So, and of course, this was like everything I thought about was like how to stop myself being suicidal. So I'd go in every week and I'd sit down and I'd say, hey, I've been thinking about this. Does that make sense? And he'd go, that's a great idea. We'll do that. And then I'd go in the next week and I'd say, hey, I've been thinking about this. What do you think about that? And he'd say, yes, let's do that. And after a while, I was like, wait, I'm paying you $350 a week to say, yes, let's do what you, the patient, thought about doing. I just like this is ridiculous and I actually called him out I actually said I went in one day and I said you know you psychiatrists you don't actually know what you're doing do you and he said no he said we don't it is like pin a tail on the donkey you know bipolar 2 isn't a thing bipolar 2 is the name we've given to a collection of symptoms because it helps us you know, all the people that have similar symptoms, we've put them in a box and then we've labeled all the boxes so that we can, you know, talk to each other and so we can make sense of it. So we can, it just helps us to organize all the things. So bipolar 2 is not a thing. It's just a collection of symptoms that we've given a label to to help us keep you all straight. And then he said, what we do is like, we go, okay, there's all these people in this box and this drug has helped a significant number of them. So we're going to try that on you and see if it helps you because you have the same symptoms. So try this drug. 
and the, the first drug they put me on turned me into a zombie. I was kind of catatonic, couldn't go to work, was just literally sleeping all the time. So that didn't work for me. And then they took me off that and they said, well, some of the people also in that box respond to this. So let's try you on that. And that is psychiatry. And, and I called him out. I mean, I said that to him and he said, you are absolutely right. And I said to him, why are you not asking why? And he said, because we don't know. So he really wasn't surprised. <laughs> right, at least he was honest. Oh, he was super honest. And I really, I mean, I almost wanted to keep going to see him because I could have those kind of conversations with him where he wasn't like telling me I was stupid and telling me I didn't mm -hmm. know what I was talking about and, you know, treating me like an idiot. And he knew that I was doing all this work of trying to figure out what was what. So, you know, he owned up to it. He said, that is psychiatry right now. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to continue paying you $350 a month. I'm just going to, I am going to go find out why I have bipolar. And of course, he probably thought I was crazy. But what he was doing was just keeping, barely keeping me alive. So, and, and everybody else on my medical team were, um, you know, I can be a bit feisty. And yeah, I've been told that I'm, I scare people. <laughs> so none of my other team uh, on my medical team, nobody said anything. They just let me go off and then I found Dr. Naiman who is also very feisty if you've ever followed Dr. Naiman on yeah. Twitter and here we are but I the, the reason I want to talk about this out loud is I don't want kudos for for me or what I've done on my journey I mean I have been used by the universe to have this experience so that I can help people is because there's still such a stigma about mental health in not so much in America as it is over in England where I was born, but there is still people don't talk about mental health out loud because people generally don't understand it. People treat you differently. If you admit that you have a mental health issue, it can be difficult to get a job. It can be difficult to keep a job if you have a mental. So for, I, I understand all the reasons why people do not talk about it out loud because it makes life more difficult to live. It makes getting apartments harder. It makes keeping a job harder. It makes life so much harder if you say out loud, I have, you know, fill in the blank mental health issue. So I understand why people don't talk about it out loud, but because people don't talk about it out loud, we're not finding out the kind of things that, that I found out and it's very hush hush and we're just continuing on this route of psychiatric care that revolves around manipulating medication just to keep you stable rather than figuring out why and stopping the symptoms. But because I've had this experience and because I'm now I don't have a day job anymore, so I don't have to worry about losing my job there's no family so there's no, my family aren't embarrassed about the fact that they have a daughter with mental health issues so i feel like this is my role in life is to talk out loud and talk out loud often and very loudly about mental health because most people can't or won't because of the ramifications of that which i totally get and since i no longer care what people think of me i'm going to stand up and say bipolar 2 disorder 
started assaulting people, throwing coffee tables across the room. And I have no shame about that now because it wasn't me. I, I remember the day I discovered that I had this MTHFR mutation. It was literally in that moment, it changed everything because in that moment it was, this isn't me. I am not crazy. This is not my fault. You know, I am good enough because I had this, this genetic thing going on that was generating symptoms and behaviors that was just like having diabetes or, or any other, you know, chronic illness. It explained everything. So that moment, life changed for me simply because it wasn't me. I wasn't broken. I wasn't crazy. And then I figured out what for me the fix was. And now I've been symptom free for four years. Some people get bent out of shape when you say, you know, you cured your bipolar. And, and they'll either say, well, you either didn't have bipolar in the first place, or, you know, you can't cure bipolar. I'm like, mm, I think symptom free for four years means I don't have bipolar. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. But I mean, I don't walk around saying I have bipolar because I haven't had symptoms for four years. So it makes no sense to me that I would continue to say I have bipolar. Yeah, I always relate that to uh, a quote from Dr. Fung, who, who said, uh, the people who say, you know, it can't be done, right? So what you're saying is not true. You can't cure bipolar are the people who lecture birds on how to fly. They don't know anything about it, yet they're telling these birds, you know, this is how you flap your wing. And they don't understand it. So you're living proof that you were able to actually get rid of the symptoms by looking at the cause. So for that's the biggest takeaway I want the listeners to, to hear here. If you're going through something right now, whether it's clinical depression, situational depression, whatever symptoms you're having right now, there's a cause for it. And we're not saying to just get off of your medication and fire all your doctors. We're not saying that. What we're saying is, let's start asking better questions. Let's start going into your health history. Let's take a genetic test. And we're not, our genetics don't determine our future, but if we know the genes that we're born with that we cannot change, then we can understand, okay, we have this genetic um, potential to not methylate correctly, to not produce B vitamins to help with our neurotransmitters. So let's start taking some methylated B vitamins so we could actually control our genes now, the epigenetics. So that's the main takeaway here. Start investigating. And I love that you call yourself a detective because I call myself a health detective. And I resonate with that so much. And what me and Carrie are talking about here is to make yourself, everybody listening, your own health detective and ask the right questions, investigate the cause. And once you determine cause, then you could finally get your life back. And then as a default, as a side effect, the symptoms start going away. And Carrie just shared an amazing story of what happened with her. And she had really crazy symptoms that are no longer there. I, I just want to be clear about a few things. Just because my collection of symptoms known as bipolar 2 disorder responded to methylated B vitamins and keto does not mean that that exact same protocol will work for you if you have bipolar. So the point of me sharing this is not to say if you have bipolar 2 disorder, go out and eat keto and get methylated B vitamins. That may not work for you. What I'm saying is I want to give you hope that once you find out the cause, you can fix it. It may not look exactly like my fix. 
but the purpose of this is to let you know that it's possible and to give you hope and to let you know that if you have a mental health issue it almost certainly is not you you're not broken and if you'll do the work of becoming your own detective and finding out what in you is a bit off then you don't have to live this life that you're living you don't have to live with this anymore you don't have to and all the ramifications of mental health there's a very big chance that you can make those symptoms go away it may not look like the same as mine the nuances of methylating with B vitamins, you know, if I'm stressed, I need to take more. If it's winter, I need to take more. If I, you know, and you learn how to titrate how many you need um, depending on how you feel. So it's very, very personalized, if you like. So I don't just want people with bipolar to just go out and say, oh, I'll eat duck, lamb and B vitamins and methylated B vitamins and I'll be fine. That's not the message here. But I highly recommend that if you have, or if you know of anyone with any mental health issues, you spit in a tube and get your DNA done. And listen to this, share this episode with them for sure. What about keto, the healthy fats that you eat on keto? Because there's dirty keto and clean keto. And what we're talking about here is actually healthy fats, not, not vegetable oils. So healthy fats. What about healthy fats on the keto diet? helps with the brain like what what about that helps with brain function helps with not just depression but what about these healthy fats help the brain function better so ketosis as you know the number one driver of ketosis is absence of carbs it's not addition of fat so for me to be in a in a higher level of ketosis it's about because we want to bathe my brain in ketones, right? So for me, carbs or absence of carbs is super important, which it might not be so much for other people. So, but then you, you the quality, because my brain is maybe more fragile, if you want to put it that way. Although, to be honest, I don't know anymore. Maybe... My brain is healthy now. Maybe after four years of doing what I've done, those issues are no longer there. But I'm still always going to want to pick the highest quality fats. MCT oil is is probably the best for people with mental health issues, but I can't go there because it causes other problems (laughs) that I don't want to deal with on a daily basis. But definitely for me, focusing on butter and ghee and coconut oil and nuts, other nut oils is the way to go for me, for my brain. Yeah, I love that. And I have all that in my coffee right here, by the way. I have grass-fed ghee and some MCT oil. Not too much MCT oil because it'll send you to the bathroom. (laughs) Right, especially when mixed with coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I make sure I I get the dose right with that. Yeah, I love what you said. And I say it all the time. Keto is not about eating high fat. Keto is about eating low carb so your body could break down its own fat and produce ketones. Did you incorporate fasting with uh, everything that you did? So I am a recent convert to fasting. And... That was a fear-based thing because when you've lived the life that I have, waiting for the other shoe to drop and, you know, is my brain going to start trying to kill me? 
after I went on the methylated B vitamins, I was terrified of not taking them. So I was just absolutely like rigorous about always taking my methylated B vitamins. I can't take supplements without food because I will throw up. So for me, fasting was just, I can't do that because I have to take my supplements religiously and I have to take them with food. And that's more important than fasting because I've got to keep my brain with the level of, of B vitamins. So, so I would never, I was just like, nope, can't fast and that's fine. I'm like, whatever, got to keep my brain healthy. Then about, I don't know, five or six weeks ago now, I came down with this crazy, well, this is a bit TMI, but I came down <laughs> with acute diarrhea. I mean, like crazy, which turned into chronic diarrhea. We never found out what that was about. It was so acute that I did a 48-hour fast and my brain did not go sideways. And then because I still had chronic diarrhea, I went to OMAD or one meal a day because I only wanted to have diarrhea once a day, not, you know, throughout the day. So I did a 48-hour fast and then I did OMAD and... I was eating at night, so I couldn't take my B vitamins at night because they'll keep you awake. So I was then off my B vitamins, and I did OMAD for, I want to say, three weeks with a four-hour eating window. So I was doing 24 fasting every day, one meal a day, and super simple, pretty much carnivore, which was the first time I'd done carnivore, and didn't take any of my supplements during that time, and my brain did not go sideways. So, and I admit that I am not starting to feel as well now, so I I feel like I need to go back on my methylated B vitamins, but the last six weeks has been this crazy ride of fasting for the first time and doing carnival, so that's been quite cool for me. I definitely felt good after I did the 48-hour fast, and then I think it was like day three of OMAD with this 20-slash-four eating window, I woke up and I felt like superwoman. <laughs> like everything, just emotional energy, mental energy, physical energy. So that's been really good. But I must say, and you mentioned it earlier about epigenetics, one thing folks need to understand is that just because you have a mutation – there's a difference between having a mutation and the mutation expressing itself. So, for example, you, you must know Danny Vega. Yeah. So Danny Vega and I used to podcast together, and we love each other like brother and sister, and we're, we're very, very close. Danny Vega has the same MTHFR mutation that I do. So genetically, there was a bunch of stuff that we were just like, oh my God, we're twins, Danny. And if you know Danny Vega, that's like the weirdest thing in the world <laughs> that Danny and I share all this DNA. So Danny has the MTHFR mutation. But if you know Danny, you know that there are no symptoms of any mental illness showing up there. So we've actually talked about this on his podcast was like, this is a perfect example of how having a mutation does not mean you will ever get the symptoms of having that mutation. So the gene has to express itself. And sometimes that gene will never switch on and express itself. Mm -hmm. So in me, 
it was switched on, everything was expressing itself, and it came out as the symptoms of bipolar 2 disorder. In Danny, he has the, the, the same wonky gene, but none of it is expressing itself. So why it's useful to know that is that if you do your DNA just because you're curious and you find out you have MTHFR mutation, you do not have to do anything if you're not experiencing any symptoms. You only treat the symptoms, you don't treat the mutation. You only have to do anything about it if you have the symptoms. But the great thing for Danny is that if he starts getting symptoms, he already knows where to look. Mm -hmm. If that made sense. Yeah, it makes sense. That's a perfect example. It's super important for people to understand. I don't want people to get their DNA done and then panic and go, oh my God, I got MDH, I've got to go and do all this stuff. If you don't have symptoms, you don't have to do anything. 100%. But it's good information to know if you do start getting symptoms that you, you kind of know where to look. But I have not, and this is not to say that everyone who has mental health issues has this MTHFR mutation, but every single person that has come to me behind the scenes, you know, messages or emails or whatever, every single one of those has gone and done their DNA and come back and found that they do have that mutation on the MTHFR gene. So that's why I say if you do have mental health issues or you know someone who does, I just highly recommend getting it done because it may well give you the starting point you need to figure out how to make your symptoms go away. Yeah, perfect example. I love that comparison with Danny. You're polar opposites for sure. And just because you have the gene does not mean you're doomed by that gene. It doesn't mean it's going to be turned on. Genes are like uh, are like lights on a Christmas tree. They turn on, they turn off, and we actually have 97% control over the expression of those genes. And that's according to Bruce Lipton's work, meaning only 3% of all disease is just strictly genetic related, right? Everything else is in our control, which is 97%. So that's a powerful point right there. And what turns on those genes is our lifestyle. It's the inflammation around our cell membrane, which communicates with our DNA within the cell. So if you have stressors in your life, it's going to turn on that gene and then boom, you experience symptoms. And we're not going to just treat the symptoms because it was whatever turned on that gene that was the problem. So that's what it's about. Awesome. So I, I think that possibly what's happened now is that after four years of all the work I've done, the food sensitivities, the high ketones, the methylated B vitamins, I may well have switched off that gene expression, which means I may well not have to take methylated B vitamins again, ever, unless they get switched on again. So I'm glad you said that because it's, it's perfectly possible that, that that gene has switched off now and so I don't have to do all these things forever. But at least if the symptoms do come back, I know what to do. And I think that's probably why for the last six weeks, I have not supplemented with any of the things, but my brain has not gone sideways because it may be that through all the work I've done, that gene is no longer expressing itself. Yeah, that's very empowering. It puts you in the driver's seat instead of being a victim of the past. You're actually now the captain of your future, whether you are... If you experience the symptoms again, you know what to do, uh, but it doesn't mean you have to actually do that for the rest of your life. So this is very powerful information. I love that you shared that. I have a question for you. Out of everything that you're working on right now, you have amazing cookbooks, recipe books, uh, and I'm going to put all the links for that in the notes. So definitely check out Carrie's work. 
out of everything you're working on right now, what is the most exciting thing that you're working on? Oh, I'm like you, Ben. I get excited about everything. <laughs> the most exciting thing I'm working on now. I'm kind of dabbling in beyond food because I am, I'm a trained pastry chef, but obviously I don't use any pastry chef stuff anymore because it's all wheat and grains and sugar. So I love recipe developing. I love doing the cookbooks and I love all of that, but I'm kind of now getting to the point where and you and I talked about this before we started recording is that the food is super important, but it's not even anywhere near the whole picture. And so I'm starting to kind of figure out all the other things, all the other lifestyle things that I have learned through this journey that's nothing to do with food that I can possibly start to help people to look at those things as well. And, you know, obvious ones like, you know, sleep and exercise and mindset and, you know, but everything that touches your life. And yes, food is incredibly important but even if you eat a perfect diet there's other stuff you know your life is not magically going to be miraculously happy and joyful just based on what you're putting in your mouth so i think the thing i'm most excited about right now is how to help people change their diet get on a good diet but not become so myopic about it's all food that they ignore the other things that could have a really fabulously beneficial effect on their whole life so important such a powerful message and you have a new podcast coming out that's going to be talking all about that correct yes there is a new podcast coming out it's going to be called keto life support and i have partnered with kim howerton and dr berry dr ken berry and nisha berry and me so there's that coming because it is about life it's not just about food and also another podcast with keto woman aka daisy brackenhall and that will not be about food at all that will be about life and all the other things that can help us have a happy fulfilled life i love it you're up to a lot of cool things carrie what are you most grateful for today? What am I most grateful for today? Hmm. So many things. Where do you start? <laughs> I guess that the cliched answer, given what we've just talked about, is life. I mean, I'm just, I'm incredibly grateful to still be here because there were thousands, there were tens of thousands of times where I was very close to not being here. I mean, like literally on the edge of the cliff, not going to be here anymore. So I think all up, what am I most grateful for life within that on a kind of a smaller scale? I'm super, super grateful for the people in my life who always saw me for who I really am and didn't get sidetracked by some of my behaviors which i now know i wasn't in control of but didn't get sidetracked about that there those people who are able to see who i really am through all the clutter of how we might show up if that yeah. made do that make sense it made sense yeah uh, that's a, a lot to be grateful for there and you went through a lot the people that can distinguish between 
Carrie and Carrie's behavior. Because as you know, those are two completely different things. I am not my behavior. I am awesome, even though I might not behave awesome all yeah. the time. And it's the, for those people I'm incredibly grateful for who remind me every day that I am awesome because I struggle with believing that. So those people are the ones that I'm particularly grateful for right now. It's been, it's been a hard year and for a variety of reasons. And uh, so I'm really, really grateful for those people. Beautiful, Carrie. Well, I, I'm grateful for you, and uh, you, I think you're awesome as well. And I really appreciate you sharing your story with with me and with my audience. And you continue to, sh- to share it on stage, on social media, and it's a very powerful message that needs to get out there. So I want to acknowledge you for the work that you're doing, and that the work that you're going to continue doing, and all the amazing things that you're up to. All these podcasts, and I could see that you're committed to sharing this message. It's something that resonates with you, and and you said it before. You know, sometimes the universe. It needs to break a life before it could use it. And that's what happened with you. It was your pain and now it's your purpose. And I so appreciate you. And I want to say thank you for coming on the Keto Camp Podcast and for serving the world with your brilliance. Where can my audience find your work? What's the best way to look you up? So the easiest way is carriebrown.com, which is C-A-R-R-I-E-B-R-O-W-N, carriebrown.com. There's a, up on the top left, there's a link that says Carrie Brown, and it'll give you a where to find me. I think it's called where to find me. And if you hit that, then it's got links to all the places, you know, all over social media and YouTube. And if you want to see the dramatic version of this, of what we've talked about, of my bipolar story, there's some... Uh, the talk I did at KetoCon and other stuff up there too. So that's the easiest way to find me. And I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to, to share my story with your audience. If we only help one person to stay alive through this, then everything will have been worthwhile. So I'm incredibly grateful for you allowing a lot of your, your people to never heard this story to give them the chance to because it's um it, it may save a life and that's why i do what i do i love it well thank you so much again carrie and i look forward to having another conversation like this with you thank you take care well thank you so much for listening to this entire episode i sure hope you got a lot from it I did. Her story is so powerful. She's amazing. Be sure to check out the notes of this podcast. We have a full-time person who is putting the notes and the links and the resources for you in an organized fashion in the notes section of this podcast. So explore it. Go check out Carrie's work. Get her cookbooks. Connect with her. She is awesome. If you ever see her speak in person, make sure you give her a nice hug. And if you found value from this episode or any of the Keto Camp Podcast episodes, please leave a rating and review on iTunes, Apple Podcast. It really makes a big difference for podcast hosts and creators to do so. So if you could just take 30 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review, I would really appreciate it. If you would like to learn how to do keto and fasting the right way, I developed a 12-page ebook. It is 100% free over at www.ketokickstartguide.com. You will learn my four-step approach to burning fat instead of sugar. Again, that's www.ketokickstartguide.com. Lastly, make sure you are subscribed to the Keto Camp YouTube channel. We are releasing five brand new videos on that channel every single week over at youtube.com slash ketocamp. 
every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time on the Keto Camp YouTube channel, I'm going live and I'm answering questions for you in person, live, and I'd love for you to join me and ask me a question live. It is every Wednesday, 12 p.m. Eastern time. So set a reminder, head over to youtube.com slash keto camp and let's connect on there. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with me and you will hear me on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.